We're in 1 Corinthians, and uh, you're going to go to chapter 8, and this is, uh, yeah, there's 8 verse 1 right there. I am teaching out of the English Standard Version, which is a pretty literal translation. Um, so oftentimes, um, I will read, as I did Sunday, from something like the NIV or the New Living Translation, Sunday at the conclusion of the message when I wanted to include that passage out of uh, Luke chapter 11 about ask and seek and knock, then I read directly from the New Living Translation. And I actually did that advisedly, both because it's easier to understand, but also because um, it's one of the translations that captures what's going on with those, uh, those uh, commands that Jesus is giving. So if you understand language, you understand that there is a, there's an aspect to verbs, which is called mood, right? And um, there is the imperative mood, which means that it is intended to command. And so with mood, there is not a, a past, present, or future. But interestingly, in Greek, there is a, uh, a present um, imperative and there is an aorist, which is a past imperative. The difference between those two, I don't know if you're interested in this, but I'm killing time until seven o'clock happens. But, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> I'm showing off. I, I had all this education, I might as well use it somewhere. But the difference between those is a present is not just in the present tense, right? That's another aspect to a verb, tense. But when it's in the imperative mood rather than the indicative mood, right? The indicative is uh, where you would see the, uh, the past, present, and future. But the difference is whether or not the action is punctiliar or progressive, okay? Here's the difference. So if Jesus is giving a command and he says, ask, Seek, knock, that sounds very punctiliar. Ask one time, boom, right? Seek, one time. Knock, one time. Interestingly, when you have a, um, a present imperative, there is this idea of uh, motion, progress happening. So the way the New Living Translation translates um, Luke 11.9 is ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. It doesn't have and keep seeking in there. Does that make sense? They're adding that so that it captures this idea of constant action. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. So we don't give up, right? Uh, Jesus told the, the parable of the importunate widow uh, this woman who comes to a judge and she wants to get justice. And the judge says, I'm going to give this woman justice because she's just going to wear me out. She just keeps coming and coming and coming. And, you know, sometimes we just have a hard time grasping that God wants to act in our behalf. And so we're worried. We're fretting, right? And so we just, it just keeps rolling around in our in our minds. And this is why I tell people, um, warriors make good prayer warriors because what you need to do 
is turn those worries in, into constant petitions, right? Pray and keep praying. So I saw a bumper sticker, and I don't quote bumper stickers very often, but I've quoted this one often ever since I saw it about a decade ago. It was on the back of a church bus, uh, church van of all things. And it said, P period, U period, S period, H period. Pray until something happens. And I thought, you know, that's good. That's just good. Pray and keep praying. Pray until something happens. Wear God out. Tell him that you need it. And keep praying and keep asking. But in this process, uh, if you were paying attention Sunday, and I, you know, I could have gone this direction and just uh, given exegesis to that passage, as I've done in the past. But um, you don't just stop with asking. You get up off your blessed assurance and you start looking. But you don't look by yourself, alone, isolated from God. You acknowledge him in all your ways. You acknowledge him in your thinking, in your seeking. So as I'm looking, I'm asking, is that it? Is that it? Is that it? Is that it? Right? Lord, show me the way. Show me the direction. Help me. And I'm, you know, I'm moving. I've told people for years, you cannot, um, you can't turn a bicycle if you're not pedaling. You've got to move. Um, you've got to keep, you've got to keep moving if the, you're going to turn one way or the other. So there is a time to wait upon the Lord. Really, there is. There's a time to be still and just pray and just receive from the Lord. But you can't stay there. You can't just sit on the edge of your bed and wait for the Lord to rain money down on you or a new job, job opportunity or whatever. You've got to pray and, you know, the Lord may or may not give you direction as you get into the word, because that's where you're really going to get the direction is you, you get into that word on a daily basis and the Lord's going to, he's going to direct you. And I, you know, I keep telling you guys this, I send out a daily passage and it's always in the midst of a chapter. And I encourage you to go to the chapter, but all you've got to do is go to lifewell.flocknote.com. Now I'm not the only one that can send you a daily word. Um, you can uh, go to the YouVersion Bible app and use some sort of a Bible plan, or if you've got a study Bible and it's got a Bible plan, but you need to be in the word daily so that you are asking direction. You are seeking direction from the Lord. So let's say it's, let's just do something as simple as a job, right? You need a job. So you pray and you ask, Lord, I need you to give me a job. I need you to help me to find a job. But you don't just sit there. Now you get up and you go. You go to the Texas Workforce Commission. You go to glassdoor.com or any of these myriad of job sites. You prepare a resume. You go out there and you do something. You don't just sit back and do nothing, right? You seek, 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 seek. Um, but you also seek in the Word. Now, the Word's not going to show you, hey, I want you to go and you know, do this or that job. But you'd be surprised at how specific the Lord can get with the, you know, the scripture that he directs you to and, and you read. And then the last one is, is ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking. And the last one is knock and keep knocking. That's trying, okay? Um, that's where you, know, you go and you turn your resume in or whatever and you keep checking. You try to get a hold of the manager. You ask for an interview. Wear them out, okay? Hey, if they see you want a job, you know, is it going to hurt you if they're annoyed? No, it's not. You know, they can just keep turning you down. Keep going and keep trying. Now, this applies to anything. I just, I did a job because that's the first thing that came to mind, okay? But you can apply this in any situation. 
You're asking and you continue to ask. You're seeking and you continue to seek. And then you knock and you continue to knock. And I have a friend of mine, he passed away a couple years ago. Uh, he was one of the people that helped me start this church. And uh, he used to say of that process of uh, knocking, right? He said, sometimes you knock and the door is opened, but even then that's not necessarily the answer. He said, he said I, I wanna go in and look around a little bit. And I like that. Right, so maybe that's where you, you try something out like as an internship or something. You don't know whether you're gonna like that or not. You don't know whether you're called to that. You don't know whether that is going to uh, be, you know, in your skill set or your educational, you know, background or, or even just something that fits your temperament. Um, there was a young man, I keep, I keep quoting people that have passed away, this young man passed away too, um, but some years ago, who told me that he wanted to be an accountant. And I knew this young man and I knew his temperament. And I thought, I can't even imagine this kid sitting still that long and doing what an accountant has to do. And the only reason he was interested in it was because it, you know, he heard that it made a lot of money, right? So, you know, I encouraged him take the classes. That's one of the good things about college is that you can take classes in a particular field and it gives you an idea of what's going on in that particular field. And you know that can kind of give you a feel of what's going on. So for, believe it or not, for a long time, I wanted to be an attorney. Um, and uh, I thought that I would be pretty good at that. And when I was in, I think it was in eighth grade, and this is before I came to faith in the Lord and uh, believed, as I still believe, that he had called me to preach. But um, I went to, uh, this is like some sort of a career day. And we went to uh, a courthouse and we visited this attorney's office. And then we went and we sat in on a, on a trial that was going on. And he basically, the attorney just told us most of the time is spent in these law books and in this office. You know, you, you get this idea that lawyers just, you know, they're in, just in court arguing cases all the time. And the reality is the majority of time, you know, they're reading law books and writing opinions and all of these sorts of things. Some attorneys really don't go to court hardly at all. And I thought, that's not what I wanna do. You know, I wanted to argue the cases and do that sort of thing. I didn't wanna be sitting around in an office all day long doing that kind of thing. So hopefully that gives you some idea of uh, maybe more of an application of uh, that passage from Sunday where Jesus said, ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. And then he answers and he says, for those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. So I don't know what you're facing right now, but that's uh, uh, something for you to ponder and consider. That's not tonight's message though. Um, we are in, as I said, 1 Corinthians 8. And I'm gonna type that in right here, there it is. And uh, we're gonna look at one through seven here. Uh, last week we were just kinda did an introduction. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, unquote, and that, quote, there is no God but one, unquote. For although there, 
uh, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and both of those in quotes, right? Uh, because they were living in a polytheistic culture. Yet for us, there is one God and Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now that's actually in the next paragraph the way English Standard breaks it up, but I wanted to bookend this with this concern that the Apostle Paul is addressing about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so again, briefly by introduction, um, this was a controversy both with the, the Jewish believers and with the Gentile believers because meat that had been offered in an idol's temple would then be taken and sold in the market. Paul's answer to this question as to whether one should eat meat sacrificed to idols was, if nobody says anything, then it's just meat. There's no association. It's, it doesn't belong to an idol. Those gods are not real. But if someone says something, hey, that meat was offered to an idol, then we'll see later the Apostle Paul said, don't eat it. Not because you're worried that you are somehow participating in the table of that idol, but because obviously if that person mentioned it, they're concerned about it and you don't want to wound or injure their conscience. So um, this applies to a lot of things. And again, we're going to get to that, but not this week. Um, so last week I addressed this phrase in verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Um, awareness of truth, acknowledgement of it, affirmation of it may happen apart from allowing the God of truth to change your fundamental attitude of selfishness, to transform your character and make you more like Christ. We always have the right of refusal, even after the Lord enters our lives. I can choose to be proud. I can take credit for the improvements in my life since Christ became Lord. But it's wrong um, if I take credit for something that God has given me, but it still remains possible. So in other words, I've, I've been to school uh, and was in school training with a theological education until I was 30 years old. Honestly, until this year, I had never put my degrees on the wall. They remained in their original. My Baylor degree was in its the tube. They rolled it up and they put it in a tube. They just handed you this tube. And it had been in that tube for 30, I don't know, eight years. And so I finally, I kept having these dreams that I had not finished school. It, they, were like, they were like nightmares where there was a class that I hadn't attended the entire semester, and now I had to go and take the final exam. And I didn't even know where the classroom was. And I'm so, I'm blindly walking around campus trying to find the classroom, and I'm, you know, afraid because somehow I have, for whatever reason, and my dream never tells me, I had not attended this class. And so I, I'm continuously, and then I would have these dreams that I was still at Baylor, that I had to, you know, continue to add semester after semester after semester, and I had one class that I had to make up. I think, this is nonsense. So I just bought some relatively cheap frames. They weren't super cheap. They're like 60 bucks a piece, right? And I put my degrees on there, and they're on the wall. And so now, when I prepare all these uh, messages and whatever, those are up there. And you know what? I haven't had that dream since then. So that's good. But you can walk around puffed up about these things. 
you know? Well, I have this education and I know so much. And uh, the Apostle Paul says we shouldn't be puffed up by knowledge. Rather, we should build one another up with love. Now, I covered that topic a good bit uh, the last time. So I want to go to this next phrase in verse 2. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I like this quote. Um, I got this from uh, a commentary, uh, the Tyndale New Testament commentary on um, 1 Corinthians. Here's the quote. Knowledge is proud that it has learnt so much. Obviously, it's from a Brit. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. The reality is, the more you expose yourself to education, the less you realize you actually know. You can, you know, get a PhD in a particular field, but you have to specialize and you have to have some area that you're, you're kind of launching into, in, into a, a, a new avenue of knowledge. But then you realize that even in your field, there's so much that you just don't know. So I've studied the Bible pretty much since I got saved uh, at 16. And I still read it and read it and read it every day. But I still realize the more I read, the more I'm exposed to this God, this gargantuan God who is so inexhaustible and incomprehensible in his knowledge that you just don't know. The, the most dangerous person is the person that knows a little bit, right? So I've told you guys, most of you know, um, I've taught karate for 35 years and um, I specialize in a particular branch. Uh, the, the school where I got my black belt was an MMA school before there was MMA. This is in the mid 80s. And back then, you always specialized in a particular area. You were a Taekwondo, you were Karate, but there are, Karate is like uh, denominations, right? There are Baptists and there are Methodists and there are Presbyterians and, you know, there's uh, Disciples of Christ. Well, in Karate, you know, there's, uh, there's Shotokan and there's Ishinru and there's Shorinru and there's Goju-ru. There's all of these different Karate styles. So even if you're just... Focusing on karate, there are so many different styles and there's so much to know. And uh, karate masters focus a lot on what we call kihon, which is basics. And of course, this is what bores your normal American. You know, they want to learn how to you can do a helicopter kick or, you know, do all this really impressive stuff. And the reality is it's the basics that win. It's the basics that win football games. It's the basics that win basketball games. And it's the basics that will defend you in a fight. Um, so, you know, after years and years of, of teaching karate, you know, people will have all these arguments about what the best martial arts style is. And I will tell you, the best style is the one you practice, right? If you practice that style and you really work on it, then you're probably going to be capable of defending yourself. But if you're just kind of, you know, a connoisseur and, you know, you just got this smorgasbord approach where you get a little of this and a little of that and a little of the other thing, and you're a jack of all trades and master of none. Um, now, original karate is uh, far more complex than the stuff that is taught today, which is primarily punches and kicks. There's everything. There's grappling. There's throws. There's all of the stuff that you would associate with MMA. Now, the reason I'm bringing that in is because oftentimes it's those who have been just exposed to a very, very small amount who think they know enough, right? 
And in fact, I've run into people who are like, uh, you know, uh, no, I don't, I don't need to take karate. I know I, I, I street fight. I know how to defend myself. I'm like, okay, sure you do. Uh, a little knowledge is dangerous, right? We all think we have all this knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But the reality is the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know. And the older I get, I, you know, I've taught this stuff for years. Listen, anybody can get their clock cleaned by somebody out there on the street, and it can be somebody that is never trained at all. In fact, my sensei used to say that the best training for a sparring bout in competition is to spar white belts, right? People that don't know anything because they just throw all kinds of crazy weird stuff at you and you're like, whoa, what's going on right now, okay? And the other thing is people that are more athletic are just going to be better at anything they do, right? Including defending themselves. So um, when it comes to knowledge about God, I think that there is a tremendous amount of arrogance, especially in the era of the internet, right? Everybody thinks that because they you can do a few Google searches that they've got all of this understanding and this knowledge, this theological understanding and so forth, or you know, they watch some, some YouTube videos. Listen, folks, anybody can say anything on the internet and there's no basis for it whatsoever except whether they can get enough likes or clicks or views, right? And that doesn't mean that whoever you're getting that information from has any sort of a basis for that. Um, but uh, yeah, if you think you know, then it's likely that you know very little. If you have little or no love, remember he said knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, then you know, I'm really showing that this knowledge of God has not filtered down from my head to my heart because this is the God of love. This is the God who defines love. And if this knowledge that I have is not affecting my character, then it's obvious that it hasn't made its way into my life. It's not a part of my life anymore. Again, God is vast, he's transcendent, he's incomprehensible, he's inscrutable, and he's only known in part because he chooses to be known by those who seek him. What does it say? Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So as we'll see shortly, it is Christ through whom we relate to God. It is Christ who reveals God. He's the word of God. Let's think about what that means, right? John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it, or has not conquered it. Well, down in 14, verse 14 of John chapter 1, we find out who the Word is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is Jesus. Jesus is God's communication to us, right? Uh, a Word is, a, is, is the, the smallest complete uh, thought or communication or message. Jesus is God's word. He is the communication of God to us. If you're going to know God, you have to know Jesus. God doesn't need to be known by anyone. Uh, in, once again, in John, uh, this is John 1.18, it says, no one has seen God at any time. 
but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And then over in 1 John, John repeats it again, no one has seen God at any time. God is invisible. Nobody knows who he is or where he is. We can see that he exists because of his creation, but we can't know him personally unless he chooses to be personally known. That's knowledge. That's experiential knowledge, not head knowledge, not knowledge about theology, ideas about God, because God is not an idea. God is a person, right? And Jesus is the one who reveals God. Now, um, yeah, there are those who would use their knowledge of God as a way to gain fame or fortune. And this may be because they promote the knowledge of God or because they uh, disrespect or degrade or denigrate the knowledge of God. I've mentioned this fellow Bart Ehrman on a number of occasions. He's written uh, uh, a lot of books seeking to disrespect the Bible and disrespect Christ and the God of the Bible. Um, you've got Richard Dawkins who has written books where he completely disrespects God. And so these are folks that are getting money by speaking about God. And then there are those, of course, who for good motives or for bad motives are preaching the gospel or teaching or writing books and they're gaining some sort of revenue and reputation as the result of those. There are those who would use the gospel as an avenue of personal promotion. I, you know, it's always a temptation of a preacher to do this. Everybody is out there promoting their brand, okay? You don't have to be a preacher to be doing that. Just go on YouTube. Um, you know, I, and I guess all these other avenues, I don't know what else you watch. Uh, TikTok, I, I don't know. I, I tried to do TikTok and I didn't get it. So I, I couldn't make it do what I wanted it to do. It was just giving me the videos that it chose for. I, but I don't want to watch it. I don't get it. I'm sorry. I, I'm still on Facebook. That's how old I am. And yeah, this Facebook had an outage. What was it yesterday? Day before yesterday? And it didn't even bother me. <laughs> So I'm still on Facebook because there's so many people on Facebook. But the point is, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or TikTok or, or Instagram, everybody's promoting their brand. Now, in many ways, like if you're on YouTube, you can make money. Like, you know, you might just be doing videos. I watch a lot of videos on cars. Um, there's a lot of new electric cars that are coming out. And uh, I would really like to have an electric car. They're overpriced right now, so I'm not gonna get one. And there's not enough of a charging network even for Teslas in Texas for me to wanna get one. But I'm interested in them. There are guys that I don't think they do anything else. They just talk, there's one guy that just talks about Teslas all the time. Just the latest stuff about Tesla, 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 Tesla. But you know, they get millions of views and then they make money. So people are promoting their brand as a way of making money or maybe they're not even making money. They just, you know, they like being the celebrity that they are. But there are, there are preachers and others who use the gospel and their knowledge of the Bible, um, whether they're promoting it or whether they're degrading it as a way of earning money. Um, there are also bands who begin with an association to Christianity. I ran into this a lot when I was a youth minister back in the 90s. Um, I was at a sister church across the way over here and we would have bands come into our facility. We I used to do our youth group at a place called The Rock. And there were all these teenage bands that would come in 
And initially they would come in and play churches, but then I started hearing some of the shenanigans that they were involved in outside of a church venue. And I discovered they're just doing that because it's a captive audience of a bunch of teenagers, right? That they can go in and play for that audience. Um, and then uh, there was a, I don't know if it still exists, there used to be a pool place that all the teenagers used to go to called Billiards. Now I know it moved. Uh, it used to be in the shopping plaza uh, off of Buckingham and North Garland. And I think it moved up, um, up Buckingham or up, uh, yeah, up Buckingham a ways. I don't even I know it still exists. But they had bands that came in there all the time. And sometimes they were the same bands. Why am I mentioning this? Because these bands were using the name of Jesus and uh, you know their exposure to church as a way of building an audience, but it didn't have anything to do with Jesus. And that's no different than people who, you know, they're in, an, uh, in a group that they think is, uh, you know, a pro-Christian group. And so they're gonna, they're gonna speak the language of Zion. They're gonna, they're gonna speak Christianese so that that group will affirm them. But then, you know, if they're at the bar across the street, then they're not talking the same and they're not shining the same light. The point is they're misusing this knowledge uh, knowledge puffs up and they don't recognize that the, the significance of knowing God is having that relationship with him that causes you to transcend all of this. So the next phrase is, <clears throat> he says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is in verse three. That's really what you're looking for. We talk a lot about having Jesus in your heart and knowing Jesus, but this idea of God knowing you. Now, let's back up a little bit. God is omniscient. That means God knows everything, and technically speaking, knows everyone. But that doesn't mean that he has entered into a personal relationship with everyone. That only happens by invitation. And this is where I, I said a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was talking, going through our series on theodicy, um, God is great, God is good, then why all this evil? I said that God is great because no being can be conceived that is greater than him, but I also said that God is great because he's capable of limiting himself. And one way that he has chosen to limit himself is by giving you free will. And that free will can freely receive him or resist him. And he allows you to do that. If you want God in your life, you have to ask him. You have to invite him. And then the real benefit to that is being known by God and realizing that God fully knows you. Like he knows you up and down, in and out. This is why you should confess your sin. He knows it anyway, right? So, you know, he knows you as you are and he loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. So we open up to God and I have all sorts of conversations with God. I have whether well, one-way arguments, but basically, you know, it's mainly me complaining and, you know, God sitting back and having to listen to all of that and then showing me in the word that I'm wrong, which I always know that I am anyway. But um, that's real, the real benefit to, to this knowledge, right, is being known by God. It's not what you know, but who knows you personally. Um, God has granted me free will to love him or not to love him. We're told, we're commanded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that doesn't mean you do. You have to choose. Nobody can force you to love them. 
That's, that's disturbing. That's distorted. Okay. You have to, you have to be wooed. You have to be one. And so that's something that I think can happen to us on a regular basis throughout the day. Just observe what's going on in creation. Uh, I have an affinity for butterflies. I have a story that goes with this that I won't relate right now, but there are a lot of butterflies flying around right now. And so every time I see one, it reminds me of God's favor and God's love. And I was complaining and moaning and whining about some things. Honestly, uh, yeah, I, I got a, a letter from the IRS today, which was just uh, so disturbing. And then I looked out the window and here's a butterfly flying by and I was like, okay, yeah, it's, I don't know how it's gonna be all right, but it's gonna be all right. Doggone IRS, Ugh. such an organization. Um, so we say invite Jesus into your heart. It's necessary for you to open the door and ask him to come inside, right? And then, you know, we, we don't assume that he's already there. The initiative is yours to take. Now, God's taken the initiative before that. He's already offered himself to you. And if God hadn't chosen to be known through Jesus, then you wouldn't have the ability to invite Jesus into your heart. But I like this from Philippians 3, 8 and 10. Um, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And he said, this is about knowing God and just letting go of everything else. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, garbage. Uh, skubala is the Greek word, and it's like dung, okay, that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Do you want that? We think we want all these things down here, but once we get some of them, it's kind of like buyer's remorse. We realize that they don't satisfy anyway. Now we have needs, you have financial needs, um, you have relational needs, uh, you have health needs, and we need these things and we seek the Lord to give those things to us, but they're not enough. We have to have God himself, you're made for him. Listen to this. Uh, this is a very, very important, uh, important verse. Um, this is verse six. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You were made for God. You may have a spouse, you may not have a spouse. The Lord may have made you for one another, but not exclusively. You were made for God. You are naturally a worshiper. That's what you are. And apart from God, you're incomplete. Uh, people feel incomplete without a spouse or without their spouse. But the reality is you're incomplete without God because everything is from him and everything is for him. We exist for, that's why you exist. You say, why am I here? You're here for God. You're here to, to discover God. You're here to love God. You're here to serve God. That's eternity. That's what heaven will be. So that should be your number one pursuit is God. And then it says, uh, for us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
So Christ and God are integrally, integrally related, so close that we call them coexistent. And together with the Holy Spirit, we recognize that God is expressing himself uniquely in a trinity of persons. There's, a, there's this, this eternal family, if you will. God is the source of existence. So when I started the series, uh, God is great, God is good, then why all this evil? I established very clearly that without God, nothing would exist. Something has always existed, but the universe is not that something. So the something that has always existed has to be capable of bringing this vast universe and this ordered universe into existence. And the most likely candidate is God, just from a logical standpoint. He's the source of existence. Well, here's a verse right here that uh, affirms, yet, affirms that. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. He's the source of existence. So if God didn't exist, nothing would. Christ the Lord, is he's the one whom we call the agent of creation. So here's the interesting thing. Earlier you heard me quote uh, John 1, 1 through 5, right? I'll just, I won't quote the whole thing, just the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? The Word, this, this perfect uh, kernel of communication, right? Jesus is the Word. Then it says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. I want you to think about this. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then from that point on, what does God do to bring light and to bring an atmosphere and to bring land and to bring sun, moon, and stars? What does he do to bring those to our, our understanding and our knowledge. He speaks. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be a firmament between the waters. And God said, let there be fish in the sea and birds in the air. God spoke and it was. God spoke and it was. And Jesus is called the what? The word. So he is the agent of creation. Now, you know, science describes the how of things. Theology is intended to describe the why of things. And so when we try to intersect those two, sometimes it's difficult. So I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, right? I'm not exactly sure how that works out. But I know that Jesus is the essential purpose behind creation. He died and rose so that human beings would know the depth of God's love and in order to prepare a new person, a new human, if you will, to live in a new creation over which God reigns supreme. So do you realize that you exist for God? Have you considered that? What are the implications of that? How would that reorient your life if with every decision you recognize, no, I'm not made for myself not made even for my spouse, not made even for my kids. I'm not made even for this career. I'm made for God. We have no purpose outside of God and his will. Apart from God, everything is meaningless. What did the, uh, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes say? Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, another translation have it, has it. Everything is a mist, a breath, a striving after wind. In God, 
everything has a purpose. Outside of him, nothing does. This is why people are just scrambling around today trying to create their own purpose, trying to write their own story, trying to do their own thing. And we've, we've come to a place where people think that they can just literally become anything in spite of what their, their physicality may say. Um, but there is a purpose. There, you're here for a reason. Your parents may have said, we planned you, or they may have said they didn't plan you, but you're here for a purpose. You're sitting here tonight for a purpose. You might have thought, well, I just kind of drifted in tonight, but you're here for a purpose. I believe that God had something that he wanted to say to you. Maybe it's something that I have said explicitly. Maybe it's part of uh, one of these verses that we've read. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking something as an application to what, but you're here for a reason. You're here for, and this clarifies everything in our lives because then we're walking around and just, you know, trying to make a living, trying to make, meet our ends and, and trying to figure things out. But the reality is you're here for God. You're here for a purpose. And that's, uh, that's a powerful motivator for life, okay? Um, nothing happens apart from God's providence. He will make everything turn out for your good and his glory if you love him and if you've responded to his call to come out of the world and follow Jesus, becoming like him, becoming like Christ. Christ is the one through whom the purpose is carried out. So much so that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that everything is made for Christ. Listen to this uh, extended and very high uh, Christological passage from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, there it is again, agent of creation, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, that's in Christ, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So if life seems meaningless to you, there's a reason. You aren't in the will of God. That's what I need to do every single day. Is this your will, Lord? All I want to do is your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done, right? The Spirit of God is not moving inside to direct your steps if you are walking around without purpose. Like the earth at the beginning of creation, your life is chaos. See, it's very interesting. <coughs> the scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There was just chaos and darkness. But then the Lord begins to speak and the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the waters creates order. So in your chaos, appear and in here, let the Holy Spirit come and hover over that chaos and create order. Be receptive to that. Allow him to work. Don't be so knowledgeable, so puffed up in whatever your history is, whatever uh, your sources of information are, that you are unwilling to receive this personal experiential knowledge from the Holy Spirit. 
He's going to come. He's going to breathe on you. He's going to create order in the midst of your chaos. He's the one that brings existence and meaning and design and purpose. So let go of your insignificant agenda. You know, we think we have all these big plans, but if we would just suffer that those plans would be surrendered to the Lord, if we would <coughs> stop asking God to get in and bless our plans, and if we would start saying, you know what, God, I want to get in on what you've planned, wherever you are in your life, right? You might be at the beginning of a career. You might be retired. You might be, you know, ending a career. Um, you might be seeking a job. Wherever you are in life, God has a purpose for you right now. And the primary purpose is for you to seek him and get to know him and then allow him to give you direction moment by moment by moment, because that's the only way that we're going to receive fulfillment, right? So that's as far as I'm going to go tonight. I want to end early each week uh, so that we will have an opportunity to take prayer requests and uh, answer any questions that you might have. We're going to um, take a look at the the very practical side of this next week, this idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So um, those of you that are in the, uh, in the stream, watching the stream, I hope that you will uh, come and join us next week in person or uh, tune in again next week, all right?